Andrew Connor. Today's guest is the founder and director of the Center for Community Ownership, which works to strengthen local communities by supporting entrepreneurs and investors in coming together via crowdfunding and other tools for local investment. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show, where we empower you. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I am just thrilled to have an opportunity to catch up because you're doing such amazing work. Thanks so much, Devin. It's great to be here. You know, the uh, Center for uh, Community Ownership uh, has always been, you know, for, for my exposure to it, doing really good things for building community capital and supporting community initiatives. But you've launched a new program within it uh, called uh, the Local Investing Action Network that uh, I've joined you for this year. And it's just great to see uh, uh, how you're catalyzing action around the country. Why don't you step back for us, give us the big picture uh, for the Center for Community Ownership, and then tell us a little bit about the the activities you're t- doing with Lion. Sure. Uh, Leah is how we- Leah, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. yeah, different. Lion, the Local Investing Opportunity Network and Port Townsend, uh, also a great initiative that uh, certainly in our orbit. But yeah, we <laughs> definitely thought that having an acronym so close might be some issue, but maybe yeah. it's all, all in the same spirit. Uh, yeah, so I- decided to start the Center for Community Ownership after I left Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, which is now Common Future. And I was there from about 2011 to 2017. And for those who don't know Bali, it was an organization that connected with local economy work all over the US and Canada, people doing really phenomenal work in socially environmentally responsible business, building local economies, economic justice, economic policy, local investment, just the whole range of sort of new economy topics that fell under that umbrella. And while we were there, you know, we highlighted and and showcased a lot of this work, including various forms of different ownership models. And there's kind of a whole subset of community ownership models. You know, people are very familiar with cooperatives, but also a lot of other communities that had innovated different ways to create and save essential businesses in their local economies when either chain stores weren't doing the job, they didn't have local entrepreneurs or local investors to make these things happen. And I just thought that was a really remarkable model. People being super creative, they lost their grocery store. Nobody was coming to the rescue. They were going to take it upon themselves to do it themselves. Walmart was threatening to come to town. They wanted to fill that local economic niche. So that didn't happen. So they came together and created a store. They have to drive two hours to buy socks. They don't like that option. you know. So I just, I really thought it, it, something just really struck a chord with me. And I also really felt like it was underutilized. There are all these communities around the US that feel like they don't have economic development options, feel like there's resource scarcity, are lacking these things, are losing these stores, both in urban areas and rural areas. And so I felt like there was just this tremendous tremendous potential for this model to be deployed and tremendous need for it. So I started the Center for Community Ownership because a lot of communities don't know that this is an option. You know, they lose a grocery store and they don't know that they have any option other than to go try to find some chain store to come to town or wait for the dollar store to come to town or something like that. 
And so part of what we do is try to spread awareness and do education about the fact that community ownership is a viable option. And then the other thing we do is try to bring a full comprehensive set of technical support to the table because it's not obvious how you do this kind of thing. There's a lot of legal hoops you got to jump through and securities law things to think about. And a lot of these places that have used this model over the last couple of decades, you know, they've sort of had to reinvent the wheel. They have to find somebody to do all the research and start from scratch. And so I just didn't want that to be true. If people want to do it, I wanted to try to facilitate it. So that's the core work of the Center for Community Ownership, creating new businesses to fill those holes, or if there's existing businesses that a community wants to preserve because they want the goods and services or, and the tax revenue and the active business in their community and the jobs, but somebody's retiring and they don't have a good option of who to sell it to, you know, selling it to the community, transitioning that way. So that exit to community and starting new businesses, those are the sort of the core work of the Center for Community Ownership. So that's kind of what we do is work on projects around the country doing that. After being in the mix of doing that for a little while, I realized that I feel like I sort of underestimated, I, you know, I knew going into that, that there was going to be a little bit of an uphill climb as far as the culture change, the education, the getting people comfortable with the idea of local investing in general. Uh, but I realized that I kind of feel like I kind of underestimated that a bit. <laughs> a bit. So after working on some of these projects for a little while, I was like, okay, we need, we need to do some work cultivating the sort of public awareness of just local investing, direct investing. Because I'm sure as your audience knows, you know, there's a, we have a long history of not being able to do that or and not really being a part of our culture. So the first step of that was collaborating with uh, some of our dear partners at Crowdfund Main Street. And I had this idea, oh, you know, what if we create a, you know, a, a, a site that hosts national level regulation crowdfunding offerings, but for the state of Montana, which is where we're based in Missoula, Montana. So basically, and I know people have created sort of state level sites of different varieties since regulation crowdfunding came into existence, but I wasn't aware of any sort of uh, sites that hosted you know, for a specific geographic area, offerings that were investable for anybody anywhere, right? So my theory was people in Montana are not going to be that likely out of habit to go to the national crowdfunding sites and be like, oh, I, I want to invest in something in Montana. I'm going to go to all these different sites, filter for Montana and find something to invest in. It just seemed like that was unlikely to happen. But maybe if we created a site that was specifically oriented towards Montana, we could develop and cultivate a culture of local investors in Montana. People who, when they thought, oh, I've got some investing activity I can do, that's a place that they went to look. So I mentioned this to Crowdfund Main Street, who are partners on a lot of Center for Community Ownership projects, and they were like, oh, interesting. We've been thinking the exact same thing about doing this in geographies. So we just, we had a meeting of the minds on that. And so Crowdfund Main Street created Crowdfund Montana and they own and operate it. It's a local label version of their national site. And what the Center for Community Ownership does is uh, finds businesses and entrepreneurs that are interested in uh, raising capital. And we sort of support them as they go through the journey of working with Crowdfund Main Street to launch offerings on Crowdfund Montana. That was kind of the next step, the sort of like an offshoot of Center for Community Ownership work. 
So after working with a few clients on that end, I just felt like, all right, we we have like a lot more work to do you know, as far as cultivating local investment action. It's really like, you know, each step of this, was, okay, the hill is a little steeper. There's a little more of a climb than I thought, than I thought there was. And so I really, and I could just sort of kind of see around the country where it's like, there's all this tremendous progress, right? Like you look at the statistics about investment crowdfunding and, and, you know, how, how much growth there is and how expansive it's been. But at the same time, I just feel like the gap between where we should be and where we are is still vast in terms of how much local investing there's happening. And just, I feel like I have so many conversations with people around the country and there's so much kind of, um, you know, just having a hard time sort of like getting traction and getting in our groove. Right. So my next thought was like, okay, people seem to be, there seems to be a lot of, of, um, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is. People are struggling is a little, and maybe struggling is fair. There's a lot of struggle kind of around this topic. Right. So I decided to, it initially came out of like, okay, this it came out of the crowdfund Montana thing. And I was like, all right, we need to do even more here in, even in Montana, you know, creating the platform, doing the campaigns, that's not enough, right? We need to make more proactive effort. So Michael Schumann, uh, who a lot of your audience probably knows as well, economist, author, who's done a ton of local economy work, a real thought leader in, in the whole local economy world, also has written books and done a lot of work on local investing. So he does a workshop series oriented towards communities and getting sort of this kind of stuff going. So we set up a workshop series for him to do it in Montana, but there was like all this other interest. So in the end, I was like, okay, I'm still oriented towards Montana in this instance, but let's let let's just throw the doors open and let anybody else come. And we had like dozens of people who signed up for it from all over the place. And my goal was to use that workshop series to further build the Montana local investing ecosystem and then build a group out of that to support this work in Montana. Um, but we ended up having like half of the group was Montana and half the group was people from all over the place. And when I kind of mentioned this idea, oh, this is going to be a springboard for this group, there was just like all this interest from, from all over the place. So I ended up ultimately creating this group with an invitation to anybody who had participated in this kind of work in workshops that Michael had done in other places. He's done it in Rhode Island and Alaska and all these different communities and all these other connections that I had made and we put the word out. And so like several dozen people from all around the US were like, we want to do this. And what this is, is the local investing action network that you had mentioned. And the whole conceit of that is there's a lot of people interested in doing this work. A lot of them feel like they're just sort of like on their own, you know, so let's bring people together, figure out how we can support them and yeah, bring resources and ideas and, and a supportive community together to them to catalyze local investing action of different varieties. And uh, if you, we can talk more about what, what exactly that's looking like as things have shaped up in the, in the first few meetings. Uh, but yeah, that's the overall, that was the journey that uh, got us to the local investing action network or LEA. Yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to see what you're doing there, and clearly, uh, you're having an impact, catalyzing uh, more local investing action. So, as we, uh, one of the things that I think is fun is to look at, uh, you know, the the great sort of first case of the crowdfund Montana effort, which is the 
uh, Pink Bench Distilling. You, you worked very closely with those folks, getting that offering done. Uh, we had them in at our Impact Cherub Club, or uh, we we scrutinized that deal while it was out, and uh, and it was fun to look at that. It was a great one. Um, I thought what they did that was particularly exceptional was the storytelling around their offering. Uh, you know, their their video for the campaign was really compelling with a bear in an apple mm -hmm. tree eating the apples <laughs> and breaking the tree. And you realize he's in somebody's backyard and that's not a good place for a bear. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of fun and exciting, but really that's not where bears belong, right? So um, <laughs> tell us about that offering and how it came together and your take, your your role in it and how it all came to, came to be. Yeah, so... First of all, they've been wonderful to work with, and yeah, they just as as you mentioned, they did just they just closed on Saturday, I think was their last day, just a few days before we're recording this, and yeah, they have been phenomenal to work with. They are they are absolutely sort of a a dream client. Uh, we, you know, as mentioned, we we sort of that's that's our role in this process of of entrepreneurs who are working on crowdfund main street or on crowdfund montana excuse me is to yeah really support them in the journey of doing all the paperwork getting all their entity stuff together figuring out the offering figuring out their strategy working on the campaign you know uh, we work, you know, the law firm actually does all the paperwork preparation and so forth. But, you know, there's a lot of help on the client end of sort of just keeping keeping them on track and having weekly meetings and helping them get things that they need. But they're, they're a dream client for a couple of reasons. One is that they just worked incredibly hard and they were just, you know, they're, they're, their ability to sort of absorb information and, and grow and they're multi-talented, the, the different thing, you know, in any given day, they are editing that video and writing a phenomenal business plan and gutting and framing and digging up concrete at the building that they're renovating. I mean, they just kind of can do everything. So that's that's such a blessing to work with. And they worked incredibly hard and put a ton of time into it. And they had a really compelling story. They had this fascinating intersection of reducing bare human conflict creating uh, forest jobs in this former mining and logging town, supporting environmental conservation, bringing a distillery and a tasting room to this, you know, really small rural town in Northwest Montana. You know, they're just sort of doing all of this cool stuff. And then, yeah, we spent a lot of time sort of shaping that story, their story, and, and they got so good at it too. And just, it's also just been super fun. You know, they started this process like most entrepreneurs, you know, knowing, nothing about investment crowdfunding and now i mean i literally will will like probably hire them to sort of like consult with future clients because i feel like they, they've become experts in the process going through the journey so so yeah they've been a really tremendous success case for uh, how crowdfund montana can be successful especially in distributing capital i mean that's another one of the theses of of uh, in crowdfund Montana is, you know, like a lot of places, we have capital concentrated in a few nodes, you know, the, the bigger cities in Montana um, and not in the rural areas or the smaller towns or some of the cities that have, you know, less of those sort of high concentrations of capital. And so building a network that helps capital flow out to those places that don't have as much access to capital, like Troy, which is a town of 
you know, almost uh, under a thousand people, you know, in, in rural Montana to be able to create an opportunity for people anywhere, not just in Montana, but everywhere to be able to invest in is pretty tremendous. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I love this story. I, I often think of impact crowdfunding, the term I like to talk about, uh, as encompassing three things, uh, local investing, uh, investing in social entrepreneurs uh, who are working on some sort of a, some sort of social purpose, and uh, also supporting a third bucket would be supporting diverse founders. And what I love about Pink Best Bench Distilling is they hit all three buckets, right? They're working on a project that really is intended to improve a local community. Uh, they have a, a social component with the environmental uh, sustainability and environmental protection kind of aspects of it. And then, of course, uh, Pink, Pink Bench Distilling is run by two women. And so they check the diverse founders box. And so it's a great, great example for me of, of uh, the way I think about impact crowdfunding and hitting all three of the buckets. So it, it really is one of my favorite uh, stories. And of course, they've done, as you point out, just a great job of uh, telling the story. So kudos to you for your involvement in that. Um, well, they they get all the credit. I they get they get almost all they get all the credit basically. That's more yeah. along for the ride. Yeah. So Andrew, as you think about all the things that you've done and accomplished, what do you see as your superpower? Yeah, that's a fair question. I you know, I was kind of thinking yesterday about this a little bit, and I, I guess it I guess it bears consideration about whether it's a superpower or a, a super flaw. <laughs> but, but, Some uh, maybe are both, right? Maybe it's both. It might, I think it could, you could easily make the case that it's both. I, I, I think that, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, I, I guess there's, there's, yeah, I, I guess this is probably the most compelling one, which is, um, definitely like maybe this is just like sort of a, a dressed up way of of talking about uh, of reframing like fake it till you make it right and i i think that the way i'm thinking of it is kind of like a willingness to wade into things that i don't really or i don't really know what i'm doing <laughs> but i'm willing to say like sure i'll take this on and do it and i'll figure it out along the way and i think everybody's doing that to some degree. Um, but maybe maybe I would make the case that I have an unusually high willingness to be like, yeah, sure. And you know, the the super flaw part of that is um, you know, periodically getting into a place where I'm either dangerously close to being in over my head or or actually in over my head. Um, but the positive thing is that if if you can if I can make my way through it, it, it allows me to do things that are expansive and new for myself at least, you know, and and hopefully has some sort of broader, you know, sort of like growth. Hopefully, it is like adding something to whatever the arena is that I'm that I'm doing it in. So, you know, I've certainly hit some dead ends uh, in my life using that strategy, but it has also ha helped me get to some places that I, you know, 
wouldn't necessarily have been predicted to to kind of get to. So yeah, it's a little bit of a shoot first, ask questions later kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, maybe yeah, uh, I'll I'll mark that down as a super flaw and a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can see that uh, I worked for some guys who um, created a business that was worth over a billion dollars, uh, and uh, and then it cratered and died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they were very much uh, like that. And so uh, we saw the strength, the power of that. It's incredible, uh, and yet it. it it uh, didn't. It, it, there is the flaw side of it too. That's interesting. And yeah, it definitely think needs about it. definitely needs to be tempered uh, with some yeah. humility or recognition, or you know, <laughs> uh, bringing in people who can maybe fill in some of those gaps, or yeah, just recognizing yeah. when you are you know way out over your skis, as they say. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they they did they get out over their skis. <laughs> I think, but. Um, as you think about what you've accomplished with this superpower, what what would you say uh, you're especially proud of having done be- because of that superpower? Mm. I think actually the Leah the Leah group, you know, it's still early, but that that's one that's actually feeling that one's feeling good. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. It's not like that was such an outrageous thing to do or whatever, because I do have a lot of experience like facilitating groups and and things like that. But to to really say to people like, hey, you want to do something, come together in this group and we're gonna like take action, catalyze it. I mean, that's a that's like a pretty big thing to suggest is possible. Um, that that we're going to be able to deliver in that way to actually really help them make some substantial forward movement in their in their communities and with the work that they want to do and we'll see how it plays out you know it's theoretically <laughs> we have as you know we've set it as a year long cohort and i have this kind of like like, are we all going to be ready to be done in a year? Or is this maybe going to keep going? So theoretically, it is a year long. We are four months in. Uh, and already, it sort of feels like it's just such a wonderful group of people. And I just feel like we, we are hopefully laying the foundation to take steps to really make some concrete things happen. Um, but I do feel like sometimes there's just that kind of magic of when a group comes together and there's certain connections that are made and there's a certain kind of alchemy that happens with a particular mix of people. And I do feel like it's really, it just feels good and valuable to sort of be connecting with these people in general. So um, that one's feeling really good. And we're setting the foundation for some really concrete stuff to happen. People who are working on community investment funds, people working on starting local investment groups, platforms to facilitate investment in their communities the production of a bunch of education and cultural change resources, some individual projects working with uh, foundations to shift investment and, you know, other specific community investment projects. So it's like, we'll see what we actually can kind of get to a, a real place. But uh, if, if even a fraction of it happens, I think it'll feel like, boy, that was, you know, not exactly to say it was a lark is trivializing a little bit, but it was kind of, you know, like that superpower and work, me being like, I think we should do this. All right, let's do this. Hey, everybody, we're doing this. And then people coming on board. And if it, if it continues sort of on the trajectory it is, I think I will feel like, oh, that was a really worthwhile thing. And that was really like, and it came out of that willingness to just be like, sure, let's try it. Let's do it. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, part of what you're doing uh, with the Local Investing Action Network is coaching people. And so you're really, you're good at that. What, what do, if you were coaching someone on how to become more action-oriented, even at the risk of it becoming a flaw, because so many, so many people are paralyzed, mm-hmm. you know, by uh, aim, you know, getting ready, aiming, so they're ready, aim, 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 yeah. aim, aim, right? So there are a lot of people who need more of a ready, fire, aim approach, right? Yeah. Because they're just not uh, action-oriented enough. Uh, and and maybe all of us could risk a little more action. Okay, so coaches, how do we get there? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, the first thing I feel like I should say as a caveat is, you know, it it is, you know, I'm a white male that grew up relatively comfortably and was educated. And, you know, I, I check every privilege box there is, right? So it is, it, it, my life has provided me with a margin of error that has allowed me to fail a bunch. And, you know, like it provides me with sort of a cushion and an allowance for, for that. So I, I do feel like it's important to sort of caveat that that I'm in the easiest position to take those kind of risks, take action and have it not work out and things like that. So I'll say that up front. And I so I think it is completely understandable when people who are not in that position, well, and even people who are in that position, it's understandable for anyone to have their own reasons for being concerned about what we would call failure, you know, or what we what what could happen from a miscalculation about taking action. So massive caveat, you know, on all of that. That being said, um, I do think that, you know, my my desire is for people to sort of maximize action within whatever their context is. So even if they're not coming from a place where they have as much of sort of a cushion or a comfort or whatever, take as much action as, as they're willing to. So, you know, it's, it is, it is unique and circumstantial, but I do think that, I mean, boy, that would really, that conversation would be tailored to specific circumstances. But I, I guess the thing I would ask people to reflect on is I think we are so, um, frequently oriented towards the cost of the failure the cost of the potential failure of taking action. And I think we fail to appreciate the, the costs we incur by not taking action. You know, uh, there is a, there are sometimes material concrete tolls to like to waiting or to doing what you're saying to be forever planning or whatnot. You know, sometimes you can measure those in really specific ways in terms of opportunity costs or money, you know, lost or things that didn't happen. You know, you can kind of add those up. But I think arguably more importantly, the emotional toll of being in that kind of like plateaued or stagnated place sometimes could be greater than, you know, the sort of ripping the bandaid off of like trying it and failing. It's like you might ultimately have suffered less, you know, going through that, depending again on the circumstances. So I think that that's the thing that 
yeah, we're really we're really oriented towards the the pain of things going wrong, and we miss sometimes the kind of dulling pain of of things not happening, and we fail to factor that in. So I think that that's maybe the the universal thing that I would say to everyone. It's just like make sure you're when you're doing your conscious or subconscious calculations about what's worse. Just remember that sort of being suspended in that kind of like limbo state or that failure to move forward, sometimes that can really be worse than taking action and having the having the the pay, the more acute pain of things not going right. Yeah. It's a powerful insight. Inaction has a cost and inaction mm-hmm. has a risk. If we don't factor that in, we may never be able to take the action we need to take, even though it has risks too. Yeah. Great insight. Exactly. Um, well, listen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Andrew. Before we wrap up, will you take a minute and share with people how they can connect with you, learn more about the community for the Center for Community Ownership and the Local Investing Action Network and anything else you want to share? Yeah, all of that stuff is consolidated at our website, centerforcommunityownership.org. It's a long URL. If you search Center for Community Ownership, we should be somewhere up there near the uh, near the top of the search results, if not at the top. So yeah, you can go to the directly to the website. There's a contact form there. Uh, people should, if they're interested in any of these any of these things that are under our umbrella, I'm always happy to talk. So people should just feel free to reach out there. Centerforcommunityownership.org. Fantastic. Well, uh, again, thank you very, very much for taking the time to be with us, Andrew. We love what you're doing and wish you every success. Thanks, Devin. It's been it's been a treat. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book. Superpowers for Good as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.